Welcome to Rehash, a Web3 podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Rehash. I'm your host, Diana Chen. And in this episode, we'll be talking about DeFi security, community building in DeFi, and a lot more with Jen Young, CMO at EverRise. Welcome, Jen. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Diana. Super excited to chat all things DeFi and security with you. Um, I'm not going to lie, those are probably two of my favorite topics. So Amazing. Those are probably two topics I know the least about, so I'm really excited to learn more about them from you. Before we dive into all of those things, can you give listeners a little bit of background into who you are? Where did you come from? How did you initially fall down the crypto rabbit hole and get into the space? Yeah, so it's a real fun story. I'll try to do the truncated version of it. But basically, I have always had a love for film. You know, ever since I was a little kid, I wanted to go into movies. I at first thought I wanted to be an actress. Um, Very quickly learned that I am not talented enough to make it in Hollywood. So that was a little bit earth shattering for me as a child. But I, I just, I love the way things were framed, the production quality, the cinematic value and the way, you know, people would frame up these various shots. And there was something really magical about that to me. So as I was going through high school, you know, I basically got really involved in the theater program, went to college to study film. I was only in college for a year. I dropped out because I heard of this crazy technology called virtual reality, And a couple of the jobs that I was working at the time was what introduced me to that. And I was just like, wait, this is the next frontier of storytelling. This can completely change the game. And I basically like stopped everything in my life to go work on that. Um, And that was really, really fun. So I've always had a love of emerging technology. Around the same time that I got into VR, I actually started to hear about cryptocurrency. This was back when Ethereum was like literally $30. So it was crazy. And so I was like, oh, I guess this is the future of finance. It's built on blockchain technology. And that's just like a public transparent ledger. That was literally all I knew about crypto at the time. Carried on, kept doing the VR stuff for several years. Unfortunately, after the first big crash, when Bitcoin hit $20,000 for the first time and it crashed, I got really freaked out and I sold everything, which I heavily regret today, but it's all good. I basically hit a point in my life where, you know, I was still doing a ton of productions, but with COVID coming, everything got canceled and everything kind of came to like a screeching halt. And I realized that in order for me to create financial wealth for myself, like I was making good money in production, but I wasn't making enough, um, especially living in Los Angeles, because I was thinking about, you know, hey, if I want to have a family in a couple of years, if I want to buy a house, like I need to be making a lot more money than I'm currently making. And so I was like, I want to diversify my investments um, as any young adult should. And I ended up stumbling into DeFi again. And I was like, it was one of those things where I remembered how awesome it was being in the crypto space way back then and how little I knew about it. But this time I was like, I'm going to do this right. I'm going to do all this research. I'm going to get a really good understanding of what exactly these protocols are and what they do and how this technology works. And That was kind of it. Like once I made that decision, I started finding these various DeFi protocols that I thought were doing very fascinating things. I ended up finding EverRise as the token first launched. 
And I really just fell in love with the project. I fell in love with the utilities that it was building, the mission statement, and I wanted to get involved. So I come from, you know, a production background, primarily in virtual reality, but even throughout the past several years, I've done a lot of various brand work, both on the production side, as well as like the agency client side of things. And I just saw some of the content that they were putting out and I was like, ooh, how can I utilize my skill sets to help this community? And I, you know, I started off doing with some graphic designs for EverEyes. And next thing you know, I was contacted by the team and they were like, hey, like, would you want to help us with XYZ? And then from there, it just built. And now I'm the CMO at EverEyes. And that was um, a really fun progression. But really for me, I think taking the leap into doing DeFi full time, it very much felt super similar to when I dropped out of college to go pursue VR. Um, And I have no regrets about that decision at all. And I don't think I'm ever going to have any regrets about doing it and jumping into like the web three space. What a cool story. That's super inspirational. And isn't it crazy how time is like warped in web three? Like everything that you just said happened from you discovering Everize to like being the CMO now happen in such a short time span that like wouldn't happen in the traditional world. But because it's Web3, anything is possible. So before we dive into Everize, I want to set the stage a bit for people who maybe aren't familiar with DeFi security very much, myself included. What I do know about DeFi security is that there seems to be a lot of scams floating around. And it kind of seems like there's been more and more scams and that scammers are getting even more creative with their scams. Like things are coming up now where it's not just newcomers to the space who are getting tricked by these scammers, but it's people who've been in the space since 2013. They've never even seen a scam like this before. So I I guess like my first question for you is just when it comes to DeFi security, why are there so many scams and why is it that it seems like DeFi security is so hard to get right? I think it's a couple of things. I think first and foremost, this space is decentralized, right? So there is already this expectation, especially because regulations aren't very clear, but that every single person participating in this space needs to be in charge of their financial products. When you're in charge of your own financial products and when you're participating in such a new space where you are solely responsible for all funds coming in and out of your wallet... It could be really hard to do the right research. You may not really know what to look for. There's a lot of scams where, you know, a MetaMask browser extension will pop up and it'll be branded like MetaMask. But if you look really closely at the URL, maybe a couple letters are off from the official MetaMask URL. And the next thing you know, people are now interacting with a malicious smart contract that is stealing the keys and access to their crypto. And it's these little details that I think oftentimes go unnoticed. And that's what can be really dangerous for investors. Depending on where you are on the DeFi scale, if you're trading on centralized exchanges, I generally think that's a little bit safer because at least, you know, you have Binance, you have Coinbase that they're monitoring what cryptos are on there. Whereas, you know, when you're in DeFi, You're trying to make trades really quickly. There's new protocols coming up every single day, and you might want to invest in a new coin that's just launching. And so it moves really fast, and you're having to make decisions really fast. And if you're not paying attention to those tiny details, you can get trapped. I think the other thing is DeFi security infrastructure is pretty much non-existent. 
a lot of protocols, we're just going based off of what currently exists out there in terms of like how they launch tokens, what platforms they choose to utilize. And so there's really no infrastructure for security at all. The third biggest thing of like how these scams keep happening is general lack of education in the space. I think token due diligence is incredibly important. I think there are a lot of folks that don't fully understand how to do due diligence or what to look for. There are a lot of folks investing in the space that also don't even know what a smart contract is. And that's kind of concerning because blockchain and all of these tokens, they're all built on smart contracts. And people need to understand that, you know, the smart contract controls everything in terms of functions, being able to buy, sell, you know, all of these little tiny minute functions and details that if you aren't aware of can oftentimes lead to you investing in a scam. So I think those are three big things. And then the current infrastructure, what I will say, especially for bridges. So a bridge is utilized anytime you want to move from one blockchain to another. This is really popular to do, whether you're on like BNB chain and you want to move over to Ethereum. A lot of these bridges utilize what's called a mint function where they're minting new tokens. So basically how traditional bridges work is you'll send tokens across the bridge, it burns those tokens, and then it mints those tokens on the new blockchain that you're bridging to. And a lot of exploits, especially the ones that we're seeing for like hundreds of millions of dollars, it's happening because this mint function within these DeFi bridges is being exploited. So hackers are finding a way to basically compromise a bridge and then take advantage of this mint function and just mint as much as they possibly can until they drain the liquidity of that bridge. So it's like a it's a whole mix of things that are causing the scams, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. So for for users from their perspective, if users want to check out a new DeFi protocol, for instance, use something that isn't Coinbase, isn't something that they've heard of before, maybe it's a new protocol, it seems you know exciting and cool for whatever reasons. What are some things that they should be looking out for? You know that 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 maybe they can spot right away, or when they're doing their due diligence, they should pay special attention to these things to identify which new DeFi protocols might be, you know, safer, more secure to use than others. Yeah. So going off of the top of my head, and this is kind of just like, again, a bare minimum overview of what you should be looking for when you're investing in, you know, these DeFi protocols is first and foremost, the state of the smart contract. Um, When I say the state of the smart contract, specifically looking at One, who has access to the smart contract? Where is the smart contract stored? Or is the smart contract renounced? Does that make sense? Do you want me to define any of those terms before I go on? Can you break that down a little bit? I know we have some more beginner users who, listeners who might not be so familiar with interacting with smart contracts. Yeah. So basically any token that you guys see available within the cryptocurrency space is essentially just a smart contract. And a smart contract is basically code ran on the blockchain that's saying, if X happens, then Y. It's a conditional code, if that makes sense. So basically within these smart contracts, there are functions such as what is the tax for this token? And developers are able to say within the smart contract, hey, 
the tax is 10%, it's divvied up into like these three different taxes. Here are the breakdown for those taxes, right? And then developers can say, here is the function to buy, here is the function to sell. And then they should actually look at who owns the smart contract. And usually that code is available and you can see whether it's renounced or not. Generally, protocols will let you know that like, hey, the smart contract has been renounced. And if a smart contract has been renounced, essentially what that means is it was sent to a dead address. So on all these blockchains, there's dead addresses. And if you send tokens there or you send smart contracts there, it's essentially dead and it's not burned, but it's dead because no one can access it. And the reason why they're called dead addresses is because the address will usually be like zero X, a bunch of zeros, and it'll say dead at the end. And basically, if a smart contract is renounced, it's sent to this dead address. And that means no one can change any functions within the smart contract. Now, at a base level, that sounds great because you're basically saying like, hey, like I know that the smart contract can't change on me. It's renounced. That's great. This is a safe investment. But the issue that a lot of folks don't realize is when you renounce a smart contract, you're giving up the ability to actually iterate and improve on it. You're also giving up the ability to do things such as like whitelisting an address. Um, this is specifically something that usually happens when you get listed on a big exchange. You'll need to whitelist that exchange's address within your smart contract. So if your smart contract is renounced, you're not able to make those function changes. So that's an issue in terms of long-term growth. Now, if a smart contract isn't renounced and it's sitting in the developer's deployer wallet, let's say this project launches, you invest $1,000 and it's doing great. And all of a sudden your $1,000 turns into $50,000 in the course of like 48 hours. What's scary with a non-renounced smart contract, especially if the development team isn't doxxed, if they're not reputable, if you're just kind of like aping into this unknown token because you're like, oh, it seems great. Like, it seems like this is something that's safe. That developer can change taxes, like the sell tax to 100%, and then you would no longer be able to sell and take out any money. So there's a lot of issues like that when it comes to smart contract ownership, if that makes sense. Whatever functions they deploy within the smart contract, once the smart contract is deployed, like they still have access to change those functions. I realize that was like a little bit of a scattered brain explanation, but um, I'll go back to your initial question. Like what should investors be looking at when they're investing in DeFi protocols? So for sure, looking at the state of your smart contract, is it renounced? Is it secured by a developer wallet? And then from there you go, who is the developer? Is the developer doxxed or are they anonymous? Do they have a reputation, whether good or bad? Like have they developed other projects and protocols that you may be familiar with? And then once you get past that, the two key things that I would look for is, is the liquidity locked? So anytime a token launches, it has to launch with some sort of initial liquidity. And if that liquidity isn't locked, this could lead to what we call a rug pull, where the developer will just remove the liquidity from the project. I don't know if you remember the Squid Game token, but a couple of months ago, there was the Squid Game token and people just kept buying and buying and buying. And what people didn't realize is they couldn't sell. Like it was what we call a honeypot. 
And then right as it was like at the all-time high, the developer just removed all of the liquidity. And so you saw the token just go straight to zero. So is the liquidity locked? How long is it locked for? Or what is the locking mechanism for the liquidity? And then is the smart contract audited? So there are a bunch of like smart contract audit firms. There's Omnisia, Chainsulting. Certic is another big one that audits smart contracts to look for risk within the code. And so I would say if you're new to this space, you definitely should not be investing in any token that is not audited. Like that is a huge red flag right there if it hasn't had an audit yet. So four main things. What is the state of the smart contract? Who is the developer? Are they doxxed? Are they anonymous? What is their reputation? Do you believe that they can build what they're saying they're trying to build? Number four, is the liquidity locked? If it is locked, how long is it locked for? And is the smart contract audited? Wow, that's thank you for breaking that down. That was probably the clearest explanation of DeFi security <laughs> I've ever heard. And uh, it's probably a good thing that I don't invest too much in DeFi protocols because I did not know those things beforehand. Not so. yet. <laughs> not we yet. will yes. get you in there. <laughs> We're, that's that's what we're here to do. Um, so go ahead and tell people what Everize is. Like, explain a little better what Everize does and how it helps improve DeFi security. Everize is a blockchain technology solutions company. And what we focus on building is multi-chain DeFi security infrastructure products. And what that essentially means is we are building a suite of decentralized applications for other projects to leverage and take advantage of. So whether that is securing their smart contract, whether that is bridging to new chains without the worry of like, oh, will my mint function in the bridge be exploited? Because that's not how we've built our bridging system. We also have like a smart contract migration tool. So another thing that you'll see oftentimes in the DeFi space is projects moving from one version of the smart contract to another. And so instead of like letting projects go out and airdrop, we've actually built a tool for that. And we have like a couple of other tools that projects can leverage and utilize. So that is our ecosystem. And what's really cool about Everize is powering our ecosystem is the Verize token itself. And so Everize is available on five blockchains. We're on BNB, Ethereum, Polygon, Phantom, and Avalanche which means our suite of dApps is available to all project developers across all five of these blockchains. That's a really key thing to note because the way we built our token is basically so we can continue to expand and bring our suite of products to more chains. And what's really cool about our token and what I will say is like, probably one of the biggest things that first attracted me to Everize is we actually have a buyback mechanism hard-coded into our smart contract. And what this buyback mechanism does is it does two key things. Number one, it fortifies our liquidity pools. And number two, it rewards stakers. So basically what happens is the Rise token itself has a 6% buy, sell, and transfer tax. And that 6% tax can be broken down into 2% project sustainability, which pays for development, operations, marketing, 
and then a 4% buyback and stake tax, aka our liquidity reserve tax. And so that means anytime RISE is traded, a percentage of that transaction through the taxes is sent into our liquidity reserves. And our liquidity reserves are coded to buy back based off of how many blocks are minted on the blockchain. And then once it buys RISE back off the open market, it actually sends native coins into our liquidity pools. So our liquidity gets bigger and it takes the RISE tokens and rewards stakers. So that's kind of like a general overview of our ecosystem as well as our token, because they're tied together and they kind of go hand in hand. Gotcha. Very cool. Um, I know you guys recently launched EverRise V3, which is super exciting. Can you tell us about some of the new updates in V3 that we should expect? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's really cool about V3 is we actually made a lot of security enhancements to the token itself. So with the token, there are three key features that we've actually added in to the smart contract. Number one is called a time lock. So what the time lock feature does is essentially you'll go into one of our dApps and all your Rise assets, right? You have Rise tokens, as well as some NFTs, which I'll get into in a second, that EverRise creates. And if you wanted to, let's say you were going on vacation for a week and you're like, I don't really want to worry about anything leaving my wallet. I don't, I just, I want to lock my wallet and make sure none of my EverRise tokens or my EverRise NFT leaves my wallet, right? You're actually able to put a lock on your Rise assets for any time period you want. So if you're leaving for vacation for a week, you can put a time lock on your wallet for seven days. And what it does is it pauses all spending approvals for your RISE assets, meaning that literally they cannot leave, they cannot be transferred out, you can't swap or trade them. So let's say someone accidentally gets your seed phrase for some unfortunate reason. If they saw that you had RISE tokens within your wallet, they would you know, they could try to go to Uniswap and be like, oh, I'm going to sell all this rise and transfer the money out. If you put a time lock on your wallet, they wouldn't be able to do that. Um, We also have a signature revoke feature where people, this one isn't released yet, but it is hard coded into the smart contract. But folks will be able to revoke spending approvals for any of their rise assets as well through our dApps. And the third feature that we'll be introducing is actually what we're calling time-bound approvals. Essentially, anytime you connect to something like a dApp, whether that is a decentralized exchange or bridge, you have to approve the token within that decentralized application. And then once you approve it, generally, you'll never have to re-approve it again. However, we saw that this was a massive problem, especially for NFT marketplaces. There was a pretty big exploit of Bored Ape NFTs on OpenSea that had something to do with signature approvals. And so what we're building within the Rise smart contract with V3 is this feature where you can actually set an auto timeout period where... You know, you can basically say, hey, every three days, I need you to revoke all my approvals for the RISE token and my RISE assets. And it just happens automatically every three days. So every three days, you'll have to reapprove signatures. 
but it's almost, in my opinion, it's like, it's better to do that. It's kind of like clearing your browser cache, if that makes sense. You, you don't always want to have all that information saved. You don't always want to have it pre-approved, especially because other platforms can be compromised. And oftentimes, if they do have these approvals for your wallet, your wallet is also compromised. So those are three additional security features that we've introduced to the RISE token itself with V3. But what I will say is the most exciting thing about V3 is our staking protocol. So with V3, we created something called the NFT Staking Lab. And so now when you stake RISE, you get an on-chain utility NFT, and this NFT becomes tethered to your stake RISE. So you can transfer this NFT, you can bridge it, you can trade it, you can sell it or list it on OpenSea, and your staked RISE will go wherever it goes. So let's say I had an NFT stake that had five grand in it, and Diana, I sent it to you because I was like, happy birthday. Here is an NFT stake. It's worth $5,000. When I send that stake to you, you get an NFT that has all the information. You'll start earning rewards from the EverEye staking platform. And you'll receive $5,000 worth of EverEyes because it's tethered to that stake. And so for us, we realized that having these on-chain NFTs was a much more secure way of us creating stakes for our community. And what's really cool is because it's an NFT, we were able to build so much flexibility within the staking platform. Um, I don't think it's very common for folks to be able to like transfer their stakes or to sell them or to bridge them to different blockchains. So that was something that we were incredibly excited to do. Yeah, we had Ben Lakoff from Charge Particles on recently. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they have some like similar features. They're not so much focused on no. security as much as some of those other features you mentioned, like the time locking feature and the yeah. uh, just being able to you know build more utility into your NFTs than what most people are used to seeing. Tell me a little bit more about these DApps that are on EverRise. How can other people come into this protocol and build on top of it? Yeah, so I think that's a really good question. I think what's interesting about the EverRise dApps in general is it's not like anyone can just come in and say like, hey, I'm going to build on top of this. Because EverRise itself is a company, there is like that B2B interaction, right? Where they're like, hey, we want to leverage your bridge or hey, we want to leverage XYZ. And so then we'll begin an onboarding process with that specific protocol. But let's start with Everown. So at the beginning of this episode, we talked a bit about, you know, smart contract states, whether it's renounced or if the developer has it. And I feel like we already kind of weighed out like pros and cons of each of those situations. So what Everown is, and it's the first DApp of its kind, is it's a smart contract locker that's based off of DAO methodology voting. So essentially what developers are able to do is they're able to say like, hey, I'm going to store my smart contract within this locker, and they're not able to access the smart contract unless they initiate a vote with their community. So basically, it's kind of like one of those things where let's say I have a smart contract and I'm pretty happy with how it's set up. It's working as I intended it to. I can store my smart contract within Everone, right? And then let's say six or eight months down the line, because one other thing to note is you shouldn't need to access the smart contract all the time, 
Like, I feel like that's a little bit of a red flag. If people are like, hey, we need constant access to our smart contract. It's like, why? Like, make sure there's a really good reason for that. But let's say I store my smart contract in this Everone locker and two or three years down the line, project is exploding. Binance wants to list me. And I now need access to my smart contract to whitelist Binance's address, right? I would just go to my community and say, hey, everyone, I am initiating a vote on the Everone platform. You have 24 hours to vote. I need access to the smart contract because Binance wants to list us and I need to whitelist that address. So it forces transparency and communication with your community. And basically what we do, the moment a vote is initiated is we take a snapshot of all of the wallets that are holding that specific token and we assign them a weight. And then all these holders are able to come connect to the Everone platform, access their project's profile and participate in the vote. So it does actually give token holders a bit of governance in the sense that they have an active say in when the developer is able to access the smart contract or not. The other thing that's actually pretty cool about Everone is it also locks any newly generated liquidity. So this is like a pretty popular tokenomic thing that you'll see within the DeFi space where a lot of these tokens, they have some sort of auto LP function, usually from taxes. And so a portion of every transaction gets sent into the liquidity pool and it's newly generated. The issue is when initial liquidity is locked, it's not locking any newly generated liquidity. And we have the belief that any liquidity that a project has belongs to the holders. We don't really believe in, you know, dipping into the liquidity pool to pay salaries because that's not what liquidity is there for, right? It's there to stabilize the price of your token and add liquidity to your token. So Everone also locks any newly generated liquidity and anytime you need access to that, because let's say you want to migrate over to a new blockchain and you're like, we want to put some of this liquidity over here, you can do the same thing. Initiate a vote with your community, communicate to them why you need access to the liquidity and they come and vote on it. So that's Everone. The next step I'll talk about is actually Everbridge. So Everbridge is pretty fascinating to me because like I said earlier, traditional bridges typically mint and burn. Um, that mint function within these cross-chain bridges more often than not is a single point of failure. Like we're seeing so many DeFi bridges get hacked and it's because of this mint function, right? So instead of minting and burning tokens to go cross-chain, we lock and unlock tokens. So essentially, Everize is a really good example because we're on five blockchains. We essentially minted the same starting supply on each blockchain and then whatever wasn't in circulation, we locked within our bridge. So that way, as tokens started to flow from one blockchain to another, tokens would become locked, other tokens would become unlocked, allowing us to keep one circulating supply. And because we're not minting and burning, we're actually able to achieve cross-chain transfers a lot faster than most traditional DeFi bridges, which is pretty awesome. Ever migrate is a migration tool for smart contracts, whether they're moving from a V1 to V2, V2 to V3, or if they're looking to perform a merger or acquisition of another DeFi protocol. 
So what essentially happens is developers are able to plug in their first smart contract on the back end, and they're able to say like, hey, we're upgrading to this smart contract. Here's the conversion ratio. And then users actually come, connect their wallets, and they swap their old tokens and they get new ones right away, as opposed to sending your old tokens to a developer and waiting for the airdrop. I don't know if you've had to go through that process, but that's traditionally how migration processes work. And what's weird is that's actually really expensive for projects to do, especially on blockchains that have a ton of gas, like Ethereum. We did like some basic calculations. If there's an Ethereum project that's in existence with around 5,000 holders, if they were to migrate by airdropping, and let's say gas was about 80,000 for each person, they're paying upwards in the high like six-figure range just to airdrop their holders. And I think it's not really an efficient way to run a business. So we created a tool for that. And then the last dApp that is currently live and available for other projects is called Everswap. So Everswap is a tokenomic swap. And it's really interesting because we talked a bit about how you know projects will have taxes and they'll have tokenomics. Traditionally, the way that these tokenomics work is when these projects are collecting tax, they're actually collecting project tokens. Does that make sense? It's kind of like, let's say, you went to buy $100 of RISE, right? RISE has that 6% buy tax. We would get $6 worth of RISE, like the EverRise smart contract, because we're collecting that $6 tax from you. You would get $94 worth of RISE. What most smart contracts do when they're collecting this tokenomic tax is once they reach a certain threshold, it triggers a function within the smart contract that's called swap and liquefy where those tokens get sold to the open market for a native coin. So like BNB, Ethereum, any of those, depending on what blockchain you're on, get sold for that native coin and it causes sell pressure on the chart, but it gives you that tax in a form of currency that you can now actually use, whether that's for marketing or to pay people, et cetera, right? Whatever swap does is it circumvents that completely. It allows projects to collect their tokenomic tax directly in the form of the native coin of whatever blockchain that they're on. So it alleviates sell pressure for projects because you know your project succeeding should not have to hinder it. <laughs> and what's really cool is if projects want to do various like tokenomic promotions, whether that's like, hey, for this weekend, we're going to burn all taxes. We're going to burn all those tokens. Like we're able to do that for them without them having to leverage that swap and liquefy function in their smart contract. So those are the dApps that are live. Very cool. Thank you for breaking all of those down. I think each one is really cool in its own right. And I know you guys have other dApps in the works as well. And I can't wait to see how those get developed and just to follow along with that. Another thing that I think is actually really cool about EverEyes that we haven't really talked about is how strong the EverEyes community is. That's something that I've noticed. Yeah. And, you know, as CMO, like I think market, I always say like content and community are so tied together. I think marketing and community are so tied together in Web3 that you can't really have one without the other. So from your experience totally. with building community at EverEyes and, you know, sort of like being deep in this DeFi space in general, how do you see 
community playing a role in the DeFi space that's really just unique to DeFi and maybe a little different from community building in NFTs or, you know, in, in different areas? A DeFi protocol is made great by its community, right? Because these are the people who are coming in, investing in the project early. They're the ones that are allowing you and giving you the time to build and to do what you need to do. And I think what's really unique specifically about the Everize community is they all see the utility that Everize has and the potential that it actually has to impact the Web3 space. And they take this and they're not looking for that like quick 100x, like we're going to the moon tonight, win Lambo, win all of these like crazy things that I think a lot of people come into the DeFi space for. And so what's really incredible about them is they're taking the time to go out and educate anyone and everyone who's willing to listen on why security and why being safe in the crypto space is so important. So I guess the biggest differentiator I would see between DeFi communities versus like NFT communities is like, I think it's like that commitment to the project, the constant engagement and education, because like, look, I can work with influencers, I can do paid ad campaigns, I can do press, but like all of that is nothing if it's not further amplified by a community. And I feel like that's what I've seen across the board in general at DeFi communities, right? They're always like pushing out the projects that they're investing in. But I think our community is really special because they do it for Everize in a way that I actually don't really see for other DeFi protocols. They're actually taking the time to like break down these crazy concepts that, you know, you and I just went over in this episode. Like what is a smart contract? What is liquidity being locked? Like, How does all of this work? And so when you have thousands and thousands of people doing that, it's a really powerful mechanism for what I think can actually affect active change within the space. You know, um, my dream for Everize is for Everize to be kind of like the first touch point for anyone interested in coming into DeFi. Like we have a ton of educational videos. We have a ton of different blogs that break down some of these topics. And it's like every single person that I've seen come through our Telegram, our Discord, most of them leave a better investor. Maybe they're not still holding Everize, but they definitely like learned a couple of things by just participating in our community about the DeFi space. Yeah. Is there anything special you do with maybe structuring your Discord channels or your Telegram or any other part of your community to encourage this? Because like you said, I've noticed the same thing. Most people who come into the DeFi space are really just in it for the price speculation. And, Mm -hmm. you know, like if that's how you get your foot in the door, then fine. But once you get in here, then it's time to learn and actually understand what these things mean, which is what it sounds like the Everize community is doing. Is there anything you're doing that maybe other DeFi protocols aren't doing to encourage this kind of like education and like deeper thinking around these things instead of just mindless like price speculation when Lambo things like that? Um, Okay, I'll give you our secret sauce. I'm kidding. None of this is um, really a secret. But what we do do is we host daily Twitter spaces every day, Monday through Friday. And so community members are always welcome to come in, chat amongst each other, speculate on new products. And really, there's just like that sense of community there by having a space available for people to actually chat via voice and not just via text. 
So we host a community space every single day. Every Tuesday, we do a community AMA where we'll have like key members from our leadership team, including myself and a couple other folks from our team, get on video as well as Twitter spaces. We simultaneously stream it live on Twitter spaces and YouTube to give people as many different places to interact. We're trying to meet our community where they are and not just always force them to come to one platform. And so there's always this constant open dialogue between us and our community, which I think is really, really key and important. Every Friday, we do live wrap-ups. I'll hop on and I'll talk about what was accomplished during the week, what we're looking to accomplish next week, any upcoming announcements. And like we put that out in video form and written form. Like I think basically what I'm trying to get at is over-communicate. Like it's not even over communicating, it's just constant communication and constant transparency. I think when you're transparent with the community about what you're building, what the goals for the protocol are, they're actually able to see the vision. There's been a couple of like DeFi projects that I would come into and like, you know, developers would be pretty secretive or there wasn't a clear roadmap. And I think like all of those things play a part in the way your community builds up, right? And I would say like uh, judging people's communities has always been like something that I've looked for. It's like, what is the community talking about? What are they most interested in? Because if your project has a roadmap, it has really clear objectives, the community is constantly having constructive conversations. Whereas if you're not really communicating with your community about development, if there's not a clear roadmap and people are just saying like, oh, trust the dev, trust the dev, like... It's a little, it's hard to build community when all the conversations are just like, oh, trust the dev, like everything's going to be fine. You know what I mean? But yeah, I would say, I would say that it's always having an open line of communication. I totally agree with that. I think especially in a fully remote distributed setting where everybody is just checking in from their screens and people can be from all over the world, like checking in async at different times. I think that over communication is so key, or it's not even over communication. Like you said, it's just constant communication and transparency and also listening, I think, to the community and hearing what they want, meeting them where they're at. I, I completely agree with you. And when I, you know, check out new NFT projects, that's a, a the, one of the first things I do is I hop in their discord and I just see what the vibes are. Like, what are people talking about? Yeah. Do I see, like, am I having fun here? Do I see myself fitting in? Am I finding myself just jumping into conversations and engaging with random people in the discord that I don't even know? Or if I'm, or am I kind of like, I have nothing to talk about with any of these people or I'm off put by it or like, I just don't feel the vibes sort of thing. So yeah, Yeah. I I think that, I mean, I think that is a secret sauce, even though it sounds obvious in so many ways, like communicate, communicate. It sounds like marriage advice you get, right? Like what's the secret to 50 (laughs) years of marriage? Communicate. Okay, great. But like, really, it's it's really important. And I think it's really hard to, to do well, actually. Yeah, I think it's not enough to make an announcement in telegram and pin it that's not communicating with your community like even if you do it in discord and you pin it and you have like a specific announcement channel like stuff gets lost people don't particularly like to scroll back and read all this information should be readily available and accessible and by like constantly having spaces having official blog posts gosh like 
there are other DeFi protocols listening to this, like please start posting your stuff in the form of Matt of blogs. So that way there's just like a living record of your announcements. Um, they're much easier to find. So like just doing those little things and making sure when you're putting information out, it's going through all of the channels. Like it's not easy, but once you get a system in place, it's very, very effective, especially when you're handling people's money that they've invested in you. Like you kind of owe it to your community to be transparent, in my opinion. A hundred percent. I could not agree more with that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jen. Do you have any final thoughts that you want to leave listeners with that maybe we didn't get a chance to talk about yet? No, I mean, I just want to say thank you for having me on. Um, Everyone that's out there, if you're interested in participating in DeFi, like I know it can seem really overwhelming, but once you get a hang of the fundamentals, it's totally possible and it becomes much easier to navigate. So just hang in there, do your research, um, do your due diligence. And, you know, luckily everything's on the internet. So everything's always, you can always research things and learn something new. Yes. And I think you're a huge inspiration towards that too, like given your background in VR and like completely non-finance things. And now, you know, you <laughs> oh being God. able to, to really dive deep and understand DeFi and then breaking all of the security aspects down for us in the beginning of this episode. I think I think that'll be a huge inspiration for a lot of people who maybe looked at DeFi as too scary or too overwhelming to get into. So thank you so much for doing yeah. that. And then last thing, Jen, before you go, tell people where they can find you if they want to connect with you personally, and then where they can go to learn more about EverRise or get involved in the EverRise community. Yeah. So you guys can find me on Twitter at Jendifer. It's like J-E-N-N-D-E-F-E-R. But more interestingly, you guys can find Everize at Everize. So at E-V-E-R and then Rise. And then any of the Everize community channels can be found at everize.com slash community. So if you guys are interested in learning more about DeFi security, DeFi in general, if you just have general questions about how to navigate the space, like jump into our community. There are so many knowledgeable people that are happy to explain the basics and fundamentals to you. Amazing. Thank you again so much, Jen. And thank you everybody for tuning in as always. And we'll be back again soon with another episode of Rehash. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Rehash. If you enjoyed this conversation and want to get involved in helping shape next season of the podcast, including nominating and voting on your favorite guests, go to rehash.mirror.xyz to join our crowdfund. And don't forget to rate, comment, and subscribe to help us get this podcast heard by as many people as possible. Thanks for being part of this community, and I can't wait to connect with many of you in Discord and Twitter soon.